There's a lot happening in the property market at the moment and with both headwinds and tailwinds to contend with, along with the odd contradictory indicator like consumer confidence being down while discretionary spending is simultaneously up, it's hard to be clear on what's really going on out there. What is the current state of the Australian economy and what, if anything, should we be worried about? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as download our free full or forecaster report, which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Today we're joined by Carlos Cacho, Chief Economist and Bank Analyst for Jardin Australia. And we last spoke with Carlos back in May 2021 about where the economy was headed in a world where vaccinations were hard to come by and lockdowns weren't yet history. We've come a long way, a lot has changed, and yet headlines are mostly negative at the moment, with threats of recessions, the rising cost of living, record labour shortages, and interest rates rising faster than ever before. I wonder if there's any good news stories being buried by this avalanche of negativity. Thanks so much for coming along today, Carlos. We're keen to get your take on where the economy is heading and the situation or the state of the nation. Thanks for having me back. Carlos, I'm surprised it's been so long since you've had it on, uh, had you on, because um, obviously we chat a fair bit, you know, offline. And I guess what I want to start on is the global inflation story, not like the big picture. You know, we've got this inflation problem, and uh, you know, it's more uh, bigger problem in different countries. But how has it sort of shifted over the last sort of three to six months? Like, you know, I don't really like to timestamp things, but you know, let's say it's October, November, 2022. How are we thinking about the problem now than, let's say, we were thinking about it three months ago? Because from what I'm sort of reading, it's, it's sort of shifted already and, and some positive outlooks, I guess. Yeah, look, it, we, the big shift we've seen globally around inflation is, is around goods versus services. And what we've seen in the last three months is that we're seeing signs of good prices moderating. We've seen shipping costs globally fall about 80% from their peaks. They're getting back pretty close to, to where they were pre-COVID. To put that in perspective, um. At one stage, at the peak um, of the you know supply chain issues, it would co- it was costing you eight to ten thousand dollars to ship a container from Hong Kong to LA. That's now back below two thousand dollars. So we've seen a big reversal there. We've seen commodities come um you know kind of moderate. Oil is a bit off its highs, but it un- doesn't seem like it's likely to be you know move sustainably lower near term given OPEC's uh, supply cuts. Um, so the, the positive sign on goods is definitely there. But on the uh, on the other hand, we've got services inflation, which is really starting to pick up, particularly in countries like the US, where rents are rising at the fastest pace on record and are likely to continue for the next couple of, probably at least the next six to nine months. In the UK, energy prices are a massive issue, with yeah. electricity bills doubling over the last year. We're seeing some of that in Australia, not to the same extent, but we're definitely you know, seeing signs that that kind of handing over of inflation pressure from goods which is what really drove the, the first leg of it higher to now being more services-based. And the reason that's really important is because services inflation, which is generally more sensitive to wages, can be more persistent. It can hang along, hang around for a longer time once it becomes embedded. And look, it's not that inflation is going to stay at 8% um, you know, next year, 
but it's more of a question is does it drop back to four or five or does it drop back to two or three and if it's four or five that's still going to be too high for most central banks i mean how do you think the rba's handled things so far you know in terms of going pretty hard and fast um you know over 2022 look i think um you know the rba was probably arguably late to the party um versus global central banks you know if you compare them to the, the rbnz across the ditch um, they started hiking in October of last year, so mm. they were, you know, more than six months ahead of the um, ahead of the RBA. Um, so I think that they have been a bit behind, bit behind, so they did feel they needed to to catch up a little bit. Um, we've obviously seen a bit of a shift from them in the last in the last month or so. The October meeting hiking less than expected, only twenty five basis points. Um, more hikes though expected, and and today. Um, on the 18th of October, when we're recording this, we did hear earlier today a speech from the Deputy Governor, Michelle Bullock, as well as the RBA minutes, which were very firm that more hikes are still coming. Um, you know, the expectation in some corners that we're near the peak in the cash rate, they push back on saying, you know, inflation is still far too high and there's more interest rates to come, more interest rate increases to come. But I think, um, you know, the RBA um, has rightly taken a cautious, cautious uh, stance and they're being a little bit more careful now because Australian households are among the most interest rate sensitive in the world. And so um, a rate hike here just has a much bigger impact on households than the same increase would have in the US or the UK or even in New Zealand. That always amazes me because when you look at the, I guess, the proportion of property that is, uh, does have a mortgage on it and then the proportion of those properties that has a high mortgage, like a higher loan value ratio, it's, it's in the overall scheme of things, it's quite low. So why is it that we're so exposed to interest rate rises also sensitive to them in this country versus other countries? Oh, well, it comes down to two key factors. First of all, our level of debt is quite high in aggregate. So Australia's household debt to income is about 190%. So for every dollar of income, we've got almost $2 of debt. If you compare that to uh, New Zealand, it's around uh, 170%. Um, the US is, is well below that. The Nordic countries are really the only ones who exceed us with um, the likes of, kind of Denmark, Norway, Sweden, all having above 200%. The other key reason is that um, we're largely on variable rates, you know, excluding this last year when we had saw fixed rates making up, you know, close to half of all mortgages. Um, variable rates are normally 80% or plus of lending. In the US, less than 2% mortgages on variable rates. The vast majority are on fixed rates for 15 to 30 years, which means that if the Federal Reserve hikes rates today, it doesn't actually matter for you know 98% of borrowers and homeowners. It doesn't have an impact on their on their cash flow. Whereas in Australia, we estimate that you know when the RBA hikes rates, it flows through even with the high level of fixed rates we've had at the moment. It's going to flow through to about 80% plus of, of borrowers over the next 12 months. I mean, do you think there's going to be a bit of a lag that you know people are starting to see their repayments go up when we start to change you know consumer behaviour, or do you think that? You know, you don't actually have to see that pain, just the talk of higher rates um, and just seeing that they've gone up. Do you think consumers have already changed their behaviour or? Look, look, I think it's definitely hit confidence. We saw confidence take a hit pretty early on, you know, just as the hiking cycle was, was kicking off. So it's, it's definitely impacted confidence. Um, I don't think it's really impacted behaviour. If we look at the measures of um, retail spending, consumption, high frequency credit card spending from the banks, it's all holding up fairly well. We're starting to see some softness in some areas of, of the credit card spending data, particularly things like household goods, which obviously boomed over the last two years as we were all stuck at home and you know, buying new TVs and couches and everything else. 
Um, but we haven't really seen a shift in behavior. I think the key reason there is that lag. So between the RBA hiking rates, if the RBA were to hike the cash rate 25 basis points today, most households aren't going to feel that in their hip pocket for about two to three months on average. So um, CBA is about a three-month lag. ANZ and Westpac have a one-and-a-half to two-and-a-half-month lag, depending on how many days are in the month. And NAV isn't actually reviewing um most of their customers only get reviewed annually. Uh, this year, they're gonna try to give everyone a review by December. But essentially that means for some customers, if their anniversary date of their mortgage was before the RBA started increasing rates, they're gonna get a 40 odd percent increase in their repayments um, when that review comes along in, um, in December or January. So there is quite a lag there between rate hikes. And the other thing is, um, you know, rates have fallen over the last, five, 10 years. And so for, for quite a few borrowers, they weren't making the minimum repayment at the at the very bottom cash rate. Only about a third of borrowers were making the minimum there. We know now it's closer to 70 or 80% who are making minimum repayments. So every rate hike as we go along is impacting a, a greater and greater share of the borrowers out there. That's actually a really interesting point. We haven't talked about that before about, I guess the impact on buffers because that's what you're talking about there, isn't it? If you're making the minimum repayment, you're not building a buffer, but if you're making more than that, mm. you are. And now, of course, um, we're now at the point where we're no longer, and I've, I've noticed that with my own mortgage repayment. So, whoops, I'm not actually accumulating anymore. <laughs> and but yeah. the other thing too that you mentioned about confidence, the confidence is down and yet spending is still up, the retail figures are up, et cetera, et cetera. And I mentioned that in the, in the intro. What then does confidence mean? Like if, if, we are not stopping our spending due to confidence. Does it even matter? Or do we even bother measuring it anymore? I mean, look, you often see uh, a good way where you see this discrepancy is um, in New Zealand in their business confidence survey, they're, they're the key survey, they've got two different questions they ask. There's the overall business outlook, and then they ask firms about the, the firm's own outlook. And you often see that the outlook for overall businesses is a lot worse than firms' perceptions of their own outlook. And I think it's probably a bit of a similar thing here where mm. consumers perceive the overall outlook is, is quite, you know, is more challenging. But then they they think to themselves, well, look, I'm still, you know, I'm still okay. My income's gone up 10%. I got that new job. Um, and they haven't really felt the impact of rate hikes. Like we know that the RBA's September rate hike isn't going to impact most borrowers till December. So it's still, it's still kind of in the process of coming through. And um, as much as an economist, as an economist, I'd like to think that households are rational and forward-looking. We know in reality that in many cases, people don't actually modify their behaviours until they see the impact on their cash flow. So it's not until they get to December, January, February, and they realize, hey, I've actually got a couple of hundred less uh, in my bank account that I'm used to at the end of the month, that they're going to have to start looking at looking at their budgets and looking at where to cut back. Most borrowers are not that forward looking and, you know, prescient to, to look at their budgets and decide, you know what, my mortgage repayments are going to go up by $1,000 a month over the next couple of months. I better start cutting back so it's an easier adjustment. And that's going to be particularly important for the people coming off fixed rates yeah. because we've got about a third of mortgages are on fixed rates at the moment. As those people come off, if you were on a sub 2% fixed rate, you're going to be going on to something with a five in front of it, maybe even a six if you're an, an investor. And um, you're going to be facing a 50% plus increase in your repayments. So it's going to be a, a big step up all in one hit, whereas variable borrowers, while they're, you know, they're feeling the pain earlier, it's at least a little bit more gradual. So you've got a bit more time for your, um, for your spending to, to catch up to your, uh, to, to your new mortgage payment. Yeah, I want to go there a bit later, Carlos, around the loyalty tax and the the issues there with banks. I know that Jarden have done a lot of research around this and um, you kindly sometimes share some of that with me and it's fascinating um, 
how big that's going to be over the next 12 months is the is the shift out of fixed into variable and how banks deal with that. But just on the inflation story, I mean, are we starting to see wage inflation where workers or maybe the business owner is just blaming inflation to up their prices so they can make a bigger margin? Um, so it's either the workers are asking for more money or the business owners say, hang on a sec, I could up my prices here and no one would say no. Is that starting to really flow into inflation where we're creating this negative loop cycle where, yeah, it's, it's so hard to unwind? I mean, look, um, I'd say we're definitely seeing businesses increase their prices. And, and given how widespread the news is around inflation, I think consumers are certainly kind of more um, accommodative or understanding of that at the moment. But in, in many cases, it's actually not enough to offset the cost pressures they're facing. So we see in, um, in business surveys like the NAB survey, if you look at the indicators um, around what businesses are saying their input costs are doing versus what they're saying their final prices or their, their kind of sales prices are doing, there's a big gap there still. You know, uh, Earlier right. this year, we saw input costs rising at an annualised pace of over 20%. Um, wages are definitely putting pressure on as well. So I think um, it depends a lot on the business. Some of them have more pricing power than others, but we've seen that in, um, you know, for example, the building materials sector, where the likes of Adelaide, Brighton and Borrell have been putting up prices, particularly for things like cement, which are very en energy intensive. Um, and that's, even though they've been putting through large increases, it's not been enough to offset the increase in their costs. And so their margins are still being compressed. And so um, it's really quite dependent on the industry you're in and how much pricing power you have. But we're definitely, the, the risk is that as wages go up and prices go up, um, you can get that that uh, feedback loop between wages and, and prices, um, the wage price spiral. That's not the base case of what we're expecting to happen in Australia, but that's kind of you know what we saw in the 70s. And that's why inflation was so persistent for so long. Do you think Recently, that's a real worry though in the US and the UK? Look, look, it's definitely a concern, and that's why central banks are acting so aggressively to hike rates and so laser-focused on inflation. Like, if you if you listen to what the Federal Reserve in the US is saying, they're basically telling you, you know, we don't we don't want to cause a recession, but if we have to cause a recession to get inflation down, we're going to do it because right now that's the most important thing for them. That's a bit of a different, you know, story we're hearing from the RBA, where they're saying, yes, we're focused on inflation, but we want to take a more balanced approach. Where we're also worried about the economy, we're cautious around households and the level of debt. And so we're going to take a more gradual approach. And the risk is, yes, inflation might end up being higher than we want, but um, we're hoping to avoid the kind of a, a potential worse economic outcome. So, you know, the, the RBA is a bit out on a limb versus other central banks, but I think there's a reason for them to be that way, just given the, the sensitivity of households to higher rates here. Can you explain for us um, the idea about going into recession, even though we've got rising uh, wages and also record low uh, or record labour shortages. So we've got a massive uh, skill shortage in this country, uh, the Four Corners and 730 Report running stories on this at the moment. Um, I only watch the ABC, as it seems. Uh, and, you know, it, there's there's oranges on the on the ground in, on, in orchards that cannot be picked. They've, you know, orchards need 200, uh, 200 staff. They've only got 20, and that's through a, a visa program, and there's a visa uh, processing shortages. We're desperate for workers across all sorts of um, all sorts of industries and services. And how can you have a recession when you've got, you know, record unemployment and wages are starting to be on the rise? Well, you know, the key thing is really going to be about, you know, at the moment, our base case is not a recession in Australia. We're certainly expecting a slowdown, particularly in those consumer areas and areas like housing as well, where, where construction is probably going to moderate fairly sharply in the second half of next year. But 
um, you know, what's going to cause it? It's going to be rising unemployment. You know, it's the fact that the RBA or central banks globally are trying to get, essentially, labor markets are too tight. And how do you get labor markets less tight? Well, either you need more workers, you need to increase the supply of labor. We're trying to do that in Australia by ramping up migration, um, but there are some some challenges with the visa system. I, I speak regularly with a couple of migration agents about what they're seeing. And, and you know, despite some of the positive news stories, it, it is still pretty challenging. There's still pretty long delays. Um, the immigration minister was out earlier this week saying that the median uh, wait time for a visa to be processed is now 66 days. Um, that's down from over 80 days in June, but pre-COVID, you're probably looking at two to three weeks. So it's still a lot longer than it normally takes. The other way to bring down, um, you know, to, to see a looser labour market is to, to reduce demand for labour, to essentially either have job losses or businesses not wanting to, you know, instead of wanting to hire five workers, only wanting to hire one or two. And so that's going to be, um, you know, what central banks are trying to achieve is essentially to drive a moderation in labour demand, um, to take some of that heat out of the, the wages pressure and to take some of that pressure off inflation. Um, well, and if they overdo it, if unemployment gets pushed too high, that's when you could end up in getting into a bit of a recession. There's another way, of course, automation. Um, you know, that's that's taking a lot of this stuff away from human intervention and, and giving it to machines and robots and whatever, um, computers. I think... It's interesting because I sort of watch this this post. I say post COVID. It's more post lockdown. It's it's sort of moving into a different phase of the COVID world, where it seems to have brought to a head so many major challenges that we that we have in our economy that previously I think we've ticked on and no one's ever challenged them. I can't understand personally why we've got a shortage of staff. Like I just it, my, I just can't wrap my head around this. How you can have this chronic you know, doctors, nurses, all the rest of it. We hear about it a lot. We hear about that systemically we've got a problem because we haven't been educating enough people or whatever. But if we go to the rest of the world to try to fill these shortages in the short term, so that's like our quickest method, right, because we don't have to train these people. We just have to clear the, the immigration, the visa um, processing backlogs. But where are all these people and where have they been trained and why don't they have the same shortages in the countries that they're wanting to leave? Uh, or do they? Are we going to be leaving other I mean, countries in a worse spot? <laughs> Generally speaking, across developed markets, we're seeing pretty severe labour shortages. Um, if you compare what's happening in Australia with the US or New Zealand, um, we're in a relatively better place. We're not seeing a severe shortages. New Zealand um, is in a really challenging position. People are, are leaving New Zealand, coming to Australia. They've been locked in, you know, locked inside for two years, and particularly young people are leaving. In the US, there's almost two job vacancies for every unemployed person. In Australia, it's it's a bit above one. Uh, so it is definitely more severe there. Um, a big part of it here is the um, is has been the the kind of you know the change in migration flows. If you look at the supply of labour, the working age population, versus the pre-COVID trend uh, and and what it's done now, um, there's about half a million fewer people than we'd normally ex than we would have expected to be in the country, kind of in that labour key labour supply group now. All else equal, if you had that previous trend in population growth and everything else was equal, the unemployment rate would be five and a half percent. So not three and a half percent. So migration has been has been a key driver, um, but it's also been this incredible demand we've seen from you know the stimulus we've gone through COVID, the booming housing market, record low rates, and um, it's been things like illness where the number of workers who can work less hours than usual because they're sick is double what it was. You know what it would normally be at the moment and that's meaning particularly for frontline employers like if you're thinking your local cafe your retailers they've got to have more staff on the books because um, on any given day you could have 
you know, several mm. of your staff sick and, and they won't be there. And you, you heard that from Qantas as well, where they were speaking about in their um, in their recent um, update that they've had to have much higher staff levels at the moment because they just have much higher rates of absenteeism. Carlos, I don't know this, but in the older generation, um, in COVID, did we see uh, people leaving the workforce on a higher rate um, or... You know, as in, you know, maybe they've done well in their property and maybe they've, you know, the share portfolio has done well in their super and they thought, you know what, let's just, you know, maybe work's not looking that great. Maybe I should just get out of the workforce and retire early. Did we see a high number of people or did we see people just, you know, the normal sort of trend? Not, um, look here, it wasn't a big shift differently. If anything, our participation rate is actually in record highs now. It's above where it was pre-COVID. In the okay. US, that's been a massive issue. You sure you saw a big pull forward of retirement. Um, you know, it's probably happened a little bit here in some some sectors. I know, um, you know, the university sector, both my parents are academics. They both took voluntary redundancies at the start of COVID. They're both planning mm. to retire in the next three or four years anyway. So it kind of was, you know, a choice where, well, I can either work those three or four years or I can get paid out for the equivalent of two years post-tax now and not have to work. Um, so there's been a bit of it in some areas, but um, but I don't think it's been a, a big issue. Um, and you know, we've actually, like I say, in a participation rate here that is is actually at record highs in the US. Um, that early retirement has been a major challenge, particularly in areas like airlines, where basically the airlines just let all the old pilots go, didn't hire or train up any new ones, and now you've got this shortage of actually pilots who are out there ready and able to to fly commercial jets. As some as demand booms back to record levels for air travel. It's phenomenal, isn't it? This, this knock-on effect, the domino effect of all these decisions that feel like they were knee-jerk, but also there's obviously systemic problems that have been underlying a lot of this, obviously with trading and uh, upskilling and all the rest of it. But what's also interesting to me is that we're talking about increasing our migrant intake in order to uh, stem these staff shortages, and yet we have a record high vacancy, uh, sorry, low vacancy rates in the rental sector and rising interest, uh, rising rents as well. So there's a hell of a lot of pressure on the rental market currently. Where are these people going to live? So that's a good question. That's, that's going to be a big challenge of the, you know, trying to up the migration intake. Um, in terms of, you know, the, the rental market and vacancies, I think maybe just taking a step back, important to kind of think about what's driven that. Mm. And what we saw through COVID is a big shift in, household formation and types of households. We saw the people leaving the country, you know, a lot of students who might have been living, you know, three, four, you know, sometimes eight people sharing a, sharing a dwelling. And the people you had coming in were generally expats, families who wanted their own detached homes. Um, and then at the same time, we saw people leaving share houses because rents, remember at the beginning of 2020, rents collapsed in a lot of areas, 20%. And so you basically had people who were living in a share house and they were able to afford their own apartment. And so they moved out. So you saw a big rise in single person households. And so we've essentially kind of filled the gap. Um, since then, what we've seen is um, uh, the short stay market has come back. So all the Airbnbs that were on the rental market have now gone off and they're back to short stays. Um, you've seen uh, a huge pipeline of construction and renovation activity. Um, we've got a record We've got a record number and, and value of dwellings under construction at the moment. Those people who've bought those dwellings have to live somewhere else while those dwellings are being constructed. And there's been much longer than usual delays because of labour shortages, uh, supply chain issues and the weather. And so if you're, yes, if you're a first home buyer, you may be living at home while you wait for your house and land package to be completed. But for a lot of other buyers, particularly those doing major renovations, which are at a record level, you're going to be renting or you're going to be 
you know, living, you know, you're going to have to live somewhere else close by. And so over the next 12 months, we expect there's going to be about 2% of the dwelling stock is going to be completed in terms of these dwellings that are currently under construction. So that should help at the margin. Um, and uh, so it's, it's been a, a whole confluence of factors. So I think mm. near term, that shortage of vacancies is going to be a real challenge. But I'm hopeful that as a lot of these dwellings get completed and you see, see people being able to move out of maybe their rental back into their home or into their new home, you will see some of that that freed up. Um, but it's a really big challenge um, at the moment. It's not something that's easy to fix overnight. You know, it's normally at the best of times, it'll probably take you six months to build a detached home. At the moment, it's probably taking you nine months. And at the peak, it was taking you more than 12 months. So, um, you know, when, when we had the worst of the supply chain issues. So it's not something we can you know, fix overnight just by deciding that we're going to build, you know, 100,000 new homes. Yeah, it's that's it's such a good point. And one of the things that I've noticed, certainly in, in a lot of regional centres, there seems to have been a bit of a trend, and I don't have any numbers on this, perhaps you do, of this conversion of what previously was low-cost uh, low rentals and that they've had the cheap and cheerful renovations and been turned into Airbnbs and, and short-term uh, accommodation. And in part because, of course, we we're all travelling domestically and there was this huge demand for that as well. So, and look, landlords want to maximise the returns on their investment, so I don't want to take that away from anybody. But it is that's part of the problem, right? And now we've got councils yeah. and, and various uh, entities talking about increasing taxes on those people and putting a big disincentive in the system to hopefully return them to the lower cost or the affordable renting space. Of course, now they've been renovated, they're probably not going to be as affordable as they were before on the long-term market. Do you have any sort of insights into what, you know, what proportion of the problem is contributed to by that? Look, I, I don't have any data on hand to that, but look, anecdotally, I definitely know in a lot of those, those lifestyle areas, those areas near our, our major centres, you know, if you're thinking like Southern Highlands and Sydney, Central Coast, um, Mornington Peninsula for Melbourne, you know, it's definitely been a big issue. Um, a lot of those areas that the labour shortages are extreme because mm. um, there's nowhere for workers to live. So if you're a, you know, if you're a waitress working at the local cafe in one of these, you know, lifestyle areas where everyone wants to go on holidays, um, you actually can't, in a lot of cases, can't find can't find somewhere to live. And there are a lot of stories around this, um, particularly kind of around last this time last year, during the lockdowns when everyone escaped from the city and was out in their, um, you know, bolt holes there outside mm. the city. But I think that you know we're seeing that in the in the vacancies and the rents data for the regions, where um, if anything, the, the the crisis is is much more severe there than it is in the cities. The other thing we've seen, of course, is um, a lot of people, particularly those well-off um, homeowners who whose properties did particularly well over COVID, they bought holiday houses in these areas. Um, you know, over the over the last two years, we saw prices in a lot of those regional areas um, just absolutely boom over the last two years. And you know, it, we might see some of those people maybe decide that. Um, you know, they're not going to be able to work uh, from the farm or from the beach house, um, you know, three or four days a week. So as, as employers start to tighten the screws on getting back to the office. But that's been another factor. You might have the, the family who has a, a terrace in uh, inner city Sydney, but decide to buy a house um, on the central coast that they're going to go, you know, down the southern highlands that they go to for the weekend or four days a week. And um, and that's essentially, you know, they're, they're not renting that out. They're not putting it on an Airbnb. They're just having that as a second home for them. And we saw in the census data from last year where there was a, a decent increase in vacant homes or second homes. Um, so that's definitely contributing to the problem as well. So Carlos, we're doing a, a property podcast here and I think everyone loves to get the magic sauce right or what's going to happen to property prices, etc. And Jardin's on record um, basically, you know, with certain forecasts for different states and different cities, etc. I mean, not so much the number, but 
can you just talk through what your belief in terms of the timing and how things are going to play out until we start to see, um, I guess, a stabilisation in prices and potentially competition to start again? I mean, and what numbers from now are we still thinking we haven't gone through? Well, um, the way I guess, taking a step back, the way I think about um, the housing market is all comes down to credit. You know, for the marginal buyer or for the average buyer, they're not buying with cash, they're buying with money from the bank. And so if the bank is willing to lend you 10 less dollars, that's going to mean you're going to be able to pay the, the price that's $10 less. So um, that's always my starting point. And so given that, interest rates have a massive impact. If you think about borrowing capacity as your starting point, there's obviously a lot that goes into that. There's there's income, there's, you know, what, what what's happening with taxes. So, you know, the tax cuts, if we get them in 2024 or not, um, what's happening with your expenses and what's happening with interest rates. And then, of course, the APRA buffers on top of that. If we take all that together, what we expect is for most borrowers, borrowing capacity is going to fall by about 25 to 30% between uh, before the RBA start, or sorry, before APRA increased the buffer. So kind of if you go back to call it mid last year to middle of next year, that's assuming we get an RBA cash rate of around 3%. If the RBA hikes further to three and a half, then you're probably going to get an extra four or 5% off that borrowing capacity again. So when you include everything in there, um, and it's important to mention income growth has been strong, so that's support offsetting some of that rate hikes. But at the same time, expense growth is also higher than normal. So we've seen the HEM, which is the, the household expenditure measure, which is the, the low bar of expenses the banks use. That's gone up about 5% in the last year. And depending on your income level, that's going to reduce your borrowing capacity by about 3 to 10% as well. So all in, that's going to drag house prices down. Now, we're only expecting house prices fall about 15 to 20% peak to trough, so less than that fall in borrowing capacity. Partly that's people, you know, trading down to more affordable suburbs, more affordable houses. Um, and it's also just, you know, the, the reality that often these things um, don't flow all the way through and that we expect APRA is probably going to have a bit of easing coming through the pipelines at some stage next year. In terms of how far through that, that downturn we are, um, look, it, it's hard to be precise. If you look at the official core logic data that most of us follow, it's still fairly early days. Um, if I, when I talk to real estate agents on the ground, I think we're a bit further through. So in Sydney, um, my conversations would kind of lead me to believe we've probably seen prices down on average 10 to 15% already. Um, if you're expecting a 20% price fall, that would suggest you know, we're more than halfway through the, the downturn here. And we're definitely seeing some signs of a bit more of a balanced market. Um, I think the extra rate hikes coming is still going to put a bit more downward pressure there. Um, but I think we're in Sydney, we're probably more than halfway through. In other cities like Brisbane, um, they've turned around incredibly quickly after a very strong two years. Brisbane property prices are now falling at an annualised pace of over 20%. Um, so they've, they've turned very sharply. There's probably a bit more, um, more of a fall to come there. Um, in terms of the timing, our expectations, we see the market kind of stabilise around probably um, midway through the first half of next year. So for argument's sake, let's say kind of maybe around March or April. And that's really going to be driven by um, the end of the RBA hiking cycle when they get to a stage where they're telling us, look, we think we've done the hard work. Um, we think we're where we need to be and we're going to sit and we're going to sit here and wait. And at that point, you know, you, you should see a bit of stability hit the market. And then if we do get some easing from APRA like we expect and potentially some cuts from the RBA in the second half of next year, then you probably will see a bit of a, you know, a bit of a recovery come through in the second half of 2023. Is there any correlation between, I guess, the speed of a downturn and the length of that downturn? Uh, are the shallower ones sort of go dribble on for longer or, and the steeper ones shorter? Or is there any sort of 
any pattern to this. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. Uh, not really. I mean, the hard thing is, is in Australia is we've had so few um, downturns at the national level in the data we have from, from CoreLogic. Like you look back, you know, 17 to 19 was the worst downturn we've had in property prices and it wasn't even 10%. Um, now the consensus view I'd say is um, is 15 to 20% for national prices. We, we've had that forecast since about June. Um, I was talking to a client um, last week who was at the, the Citibank conference um, then and he said uh, one of the panels he went to, there was a poll of the people in the room and 86% or so expected a 15 to 20% price fall. So it seems to be what, what people are expecting. Um, I think I think there's a big difference in, in property downturns though in terms of like what's driving them. You know, the 17 to 19 period was really all about tightening up in lending standards, um, banks using, uh, going through your expenses with a fine tooth comb. Um, we didn't have any rate hikes, you know, that was all just more policy driven. And so I think it took a bit longer to flow through and it obviously didn't impact existing homeowners or existing borrowers is only impacting new ones. Whereas this time around, it's driven by, you know, the fastest pace of rate hikes we've seen since 1994. And um, and that's having an impact on, you know, all variable rate borrowers and, you know, you know, fairly soon most fixed rate borrowers as well. So it does have a greater impact on the market. Now, importantly, um, you know, you both know, you know, a lot of borrowers do have a lot of equity. So I don't think we're going to see necessarily forced sellers. Um, but I do think, you are seeing um, people, you know, probably at this stage who are maybe deciding that um, either to to jump out while they still can, or they're just going to hold off selling. And so you have seen a real seizing up of the market. And you've seen volumes dry up quite quickly. And in Sydney, uh, new listings are around record lows now. So um, you know maybe that provides a bit of support as well. The fact that um, as I saw, I think you posted on today, Chris. You know, one of your one of your clients buying their their forever home. Um, you know, and still have to pay pay a pretty pretty penny for it. And I think at the moment, um, the reality is there's there's not a whole lot of listings out there, and there's even fewer high quality listings because most people who have those homes don't want to sell them in a weak market. They remember that the house down the road sold for twenty percent more six months ago, and they don't want to be that person who um who sells at the bottom. And so most people who can are, are holding out, and that's what we hear when we speak to real estate agents that really the the sales that they're seeing at the moment are those that are driven by life change like death divorce etc or those people who are upgrading and so they're happy to trade in the softer market because it means they're gonna you know they get a discount on the new house they don't get as much for their old house but it, but you're not seeing any of those opportunistic sellers that we saw through the through the last boom it's certainly perception though isn't it because I, I, we had matt hasten from copton hasten an agent on a couple of weeks back and he was talking about how his conversations with vendor around you know you don't expect what you could have got last year, you're looking at 50% down. And yet, so far, the evidence is pointing, certainly in that marketplace, I've been tracking uh, 2021 sales that are then on sold in 2022, and, and we're still tracking them, and we're yet to find one that's sold at a loss, right? So- oh, I, can, I can send you a few, I think it depends a lot on the house, but it's, um, but it's very, yeah, I think the high quality properties are still doing well, anything that's renovated and ready to live in, but you're, I think the ones that are, you know, 
challenged, uh, uh, it's a difficult market for that. 100%, and I'd love you to send them through to me because I am compiling this stuff. The point I'm trying to make with that, and certainly some of those properties, there's one property that it actually sold in April this year and then on sold in August this year, and it was a C-grade property, I can absolutely tell you that. It made a very small uh, increase. It sold for a very small increase. It wouldn't have covered the costs. It still would have cost the, the first, the April purchase would have made a loss. But in nominal, in terms of sale prices, it was a slight increase. So that, that was interesting because the official data was saying prices are falling, and yet that is a really poor example of an asset, in my view. It, it uh, you know, if anything's going to lose value, it would. So I guess the, the point I'm trying to make is that there's a lot of talk out there in terms of these broad numbers, oh, prices have fallen X, they've done this and all the rest of it, and then got CoreLogic's official figures coming through around that. But case by case at the moment, pending your email sending those examples that have lost money. And I'm not doubting that they will lose money. They will, right? Some will. Um, but it is interesting that some aren't. Not everything is losing money, yet official figures are saying prices are falling. And I think that that's just, an in, uh, for me, it's an interesting insight into why we need to understand the market on a granular level. But also it's interesting for me because I know the conversations agents are having with vendors and buyers, and it's frankly harder for them to sell at the moment. This is normal market conditions. This is when they have to actually get some skills about them to do a job, you know, mm -hmm. as opposed to, I think they've got it, they've had it a bit easy for a bit long, you know. So I'm finding just some of the commentary out there and some of the expectation around pricing is very much around a perception rather than reality. That's my I, take on that. I mean, I, I would sort of, with your research there, Veronica, I think you're looking at people who bought last year and selling within 12 months. Um, now, why are you doing that? I mean, maybe it's a death or a divorce or something like that, but people are generally going into property with longer term timeframes. And so if someone is going to make that decision within 12 months, the anchoring bias, the loss aversion is so strong that someone wouldn't do it unless they could get basically a better price. Um, I mean, we had literally this morning a client, um, you know, apartment in the east, um, had a baby um, and realised that, you know, this baby, this apartment isn't going to suit baby life and it's not what she should have bought, right? And um, she wished she went for something different, but she didn't have the confidence to spend that type of money back then. Um, so now we're looking to sell, but she, you know, she wants to sell it for more than she paid. She's got that real strong anchoring bias. Um, even a client who... Came to us for advice uh, a couple of months ago. I said to do something. He didn't do that. He went and bought a house in Western Sydney and he bought it on a really busy road and he just made a really quick decision. He was thinking about buying a house in Northwest Sydney. Um, and uh, he said to me, don't worry, I can sell it for more than you know I paid. And he tried to sell it, put it on the market, couldn't sell it for more than he paid. So he still got it. Um, and so I think this maybe that's also playing into your research there as yeah, well. Is there's, that, there's definitely the, 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 loss, the loss aversion, I think, that, that plays in people's minds. And, and an example of that, an agent I speak to regularly who's a, um, a pretty one of, the, one of the big guys in the eastern suburbs, he told me normally he very, very rarely doesn't sell a property. You know, it's very rare for him to have a, a failed sale. Through the last kind of three to four months, he's probably had about 20% of his listings um, end up being pulled. So you definitely see a lot of cases where vendor expectations and buyer, you know, ability or willingness to pay, the gap is just too large to bridge. To, to bridge. And so the vendors will just, you know, in a lot of cases, they just say, no, I'm not willing to take that sort of haircut on either my expectations or, or a loss, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold on to it. I think that's, that's an important distinction because that's somebody who's got a discretionary sale. 
Right, but Chris, when you're talking about like what you said, they're about the sort of person that buys a property one year and then sells it the next. It isn't usually discretionary. They, mm. they actually have to sell, otherwise you wouldn't. And you certainly wouldn't choose to sell it in a falling market. You would, you would choose to wait if you had discretion. So the loss aversion doesn't really play in with those types of vendors. They're going to have to sell regardless. Mm. And I, I did the same sort of research back in the, the 2017 to 2019 period, and the, by vastly the high proportion sold at a loss. So, so I'm just waiting. I'm just gathering this information. I'm not mm. saying that, that prices are rising. I'm just yeah. saying it's interesting that the same, the same agents that are sometimes selling these houses and demonstrating that in some cases, some buyers will come along and pay more than other buyers paid a year ago, even though that is the case, even though mm. they are getting some of these 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 uh, results, they're still talking the market down. And I just find that quite fascinating that that I guess the fact that they have to work harder potentially is, is um, entering into their thinking around the market rather than actually what's happening in mm. the market and another thing that i've been tracking too because i track in sydney i track the clearance rates and i also uh track with uh the proportion of listings that are withdrawn every week because that withdrawn listings proportion shows really how confident vendors are and agents are and that's been tracking down and clearance have been clearance rates in sydney have been tracking up very very gradual but very clear on mm. the chart so there's a trend um and and the actual the listings uh, numbers are all over the shop, but averaging out, yes, they are about fifteen percent down to what they are on normal, uh, you know, five year rolling averages. So it, it is that's probably what's um, keeping propping it up. The very fact that there's less listings out there, but I just find all that sort of stuff fascinating. That despite all this negativity and the doom yeah. and gloom, there's there's actually some little little tiny nuggets in there that show that. Buyers aren't necessarily as negative as everyone's thinking. They're still borrowing money, whether they're borrowing as much as they could before. Maybe they weren't borrowing their full capacity before. You know, they're out there and they're, they're transacting. I was talking to an agent in a in a uh, Sutherland Shire today, and he was telling me about they're, they're still selling properties on average within three weeks. You know, so it's not terrible. It's just that I think we had ridiculously high and everyone's forgotten what a normal market looks like. You know, I, d I definitely think it's, it's not all, it's not all, you know, one theme, but I do think, um, you know, with more rate hikes to come, maybe some of the sentiment that we've seen the, the bottoms near and, uh, and, you know, things will look up soon is, is a little bit premature. Yeah. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, borrowing capacity, interest rates are the most important factor for the aggregate housing market. Now, obviously yeah. there's, there's, local things that will impact individual suburbs and streets but in general that impact of interest rates is um is very hard to escape and, and i agree you know the, the sentiment is definitely you know has stabilized i think auction clearance rates are, are showing some stability my anecdotal feedback from agents suggests a lot of that student vendors kind of expectations being brought down to a level where they where they know where the market is um, but we've also seen, I, I also, the other one that I look at in addition to that kind of withdrawn number in the clearance rates is um, the number that is selling before auction versus at auction. And mm. you have seen a pickup in there as well. And I think that I kind of see that a bit of a sign of a, in a bit of a softer market, I think agents are much more willing to take the sure thing of a, of a decent offer as yeah. opposed to place it on the market. And the way I, the way I think through that, you know, I still love studying game theory when I was at uni, it's kind of, you know, there's, there's some of this idea of, You've got private information that you want to share with the market and 
In the case of a real estate agent, if your private information is that you know you got a lot of buyers, you want to tell everyone that. And the best way to do that is an auction and to show them to each other. If your private information is that, no, actually, I've only got one or two people who are actually seriously considering this house, an auction is actually not a great idea because then you've got the one guy standing in the room looking around and saying, no, there's, there's no other serious bidders here. Um, I can I can lowball it and, and maybe go into negotiation and pay less than I might, might have been willing to pay um, otherwise. It's so true. We uh, I track that too, but interestingly, I've seen that um, that hasn't been as clear to me the the difference between uh, auction offers prior or sell, property selling prior to auction, say a year ago to now. That you know I, I follow the Cooley um, the Cooley uh, what do they call it Cooley auctions. They have a Cooley index. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's where you're getting that data, but that's one of the sources I get of that data because it's hard to get that um, that granular auction data. You can't get it from CoreLogic and um, Domain. Yeah, um, it's not actually on offer. But and the figures that they're showing is roughly the same. And I think partly the reason it's roughly the same is because in a hot market, the agent does not want to sell prior, as you're saying. Buyers are, are driving that. Whereas in a slow market, it's the agent that's driving it. I think agents are a lot more skilled at getting a pre-auction offer out of a buyer than a. Uh, in a slow market than a buyer is at getting one accepted in a hot market, mm. if that makes sense. So so it's funny because I've been watching that. I want to see those levels of pre-auction offers go up because I could see then that actually that's how it's playing out. But I'm seeing as they're stagnant, but I think there's different drivers behind those numbers. So yeah. it's a bit of a, it's a hard one, that one. I mean, I guess there's a uh, lot's happening. I mean, I, lots of different markets, et cetera. And you can think about this market versus that market. I mean, what we're seeing, because we've got clients buying in lots of different markets. Um, I think in the first six months, you know, it was really the opportunistic person who was very high trajectory of income, very confident about their own financial position that they could, you know, almost pick the market, right? And, and, and try to find a bargain, right? But I do think the must-do upgrader, the, the first home buyer that got burnt the last few years, they're starting to say, well, yeah, prices could be cheaper next year, but I really just need to buy. But a lot of people have been looking just still in the market pre-approved, but they can't find anything. So they're starting to realize that. And I think a lot of people have processed higher rates. They've realized that rates have gone up and then they're going to, you know, and they've figured out what that's going to be and what that cost is going to be. So I do think buy demand picking up. Um, we can see that with inquiry. We can see, you know, more and more people buying. Um, but I, it's definitely not the mass market because people are very late to parties, aren't they, Carlos? You know, <laughs> you know, the, the, it's not till they see prices start running on them that you know they get worried right and so it's i think we're a long way till the mass market wants to get back into the property market which will be the thing that really supports and pushes prices up cars i think it'd be interesting to just have a conversation at the end here just around mortgage pricing um and you know just how crazy it is uh you know every mortgage broker should say this right how amazing the rates are today but just how big the new customer rates are versus the existing customer rates and the loyalty tax problem um just how prolific it is really it's just you know enormous it's really one of the best ways to offset the rate hikes is just to get yourself a better deal um and then this fixed rate story that which you touched on before yeah so at the moment we've seen on average based on the kind of macro data the rba produces yep. the First, um, uh, the front book discount of the loyalty tax, as some people call it, at 50 basis points, so half a percent. Now, obviously, on an individual basis, if you're looking at discounts, they're even higher, but that's that's the highest we've ever seen for the, the front book discount. So you're seeing very, very attractive rates for new borrowers. The reason that's coming through is because, um, you know, 
mortgage volumes are slowing. So loan, monthly loan flow is down about 18% from the peak. And so your banks are competing more aggressively over the, you know, the fewer mortgages that are going through. And um, compared to fixed rates, the banks know that, you know, they're going to get these loans in, interest rates are going to go up, they've still got very low cost deposits, and they're still going to make a lot of money on them in the near term. And so banks are competing quite aggressively there. On top of that, as I'm, I'm sure you're, you're well aware of, Chris, there's, there's some very generous um, cashback offers out there in the market to the extent that, um, you know, speaking to, to one major bank, they don't actually think um, that their return on, on equity from doing those from doing those loans with a large cashback offer is is positive. They think it's probably once you factor in a customer refinancing within three to four years, it's probably actually not making the bank any money. You're basically paying away most of the benefit you're getting. But that's only really for the high quality borrowers, I should say. You know, if you're sub 80, sub 70% LVR, um, pay as you go. And I think there's a the challenge for a lot of borrowers is going to be what the change in borrowing capacity um, means for them. And and in a lot of cases, you're going to see borrowers who may not qualify for their loan anymore. And so they're going to face mm. difficulty refinancing. Now, there's not much good data on it, but we did a piece of work on this recently. We estimated that probably 20 to 30% of recent borrowers are going to find themselves unable to refinance. They're going to become mortgage prisoners, um, as, as the term is. And they're going to, um, you know, they're, they're not going to be able to get take advantage of those low rates. They're not going to be able to refinance away. Um, and they're going to be reliant in a lot of cases on their on their lender. Hopefully, um, you know, not taking advantage of that when they roll off a fixed rate, because that's going to be the challenge for some of these buyers. They're going to go from a fixed rate of one point nine percent. They would like to refinance. They may not be able to, and so they're really going to be reliant on their lender um, giving them a, a relatively competitive offer. And so far, we, that is definitely the strategy of one of the banks. So we know CBA at their, at their recent um, annual result was saying their strategy to retain customers is basically to offer those customers rolling off fixed rates a competitive variable rate that's largely comparable to what a new customer would get coming in the front door. And, um, and you know, use that as retention mechanism. If that's the case, then it's not too bad. But obviously, if you're one of those mortgage prisoners, the risk is your bank just says, well, hey, we know you can't go anywhere else. We're going to charge you an uncompetitive rate and a bit more, and you're not going to be able to, to go away from that. And that's really going to reach a peak in um, kind of middle of next year. So at the moment, there's about $500 billion of mortgages rolling off fixed rates over the next 18 months or so. It's about a third of total mortgages outstanding that are fixed at the moment. And that's really going to peak kind of three months either side of June next year. So that is another reason why we're seeing this lag in monetary policy where um, rates are going up, but for a lot of buyers, you know, they might have their, their mortgage, you know, 30, 50, 70% fixed. They're not feeling the full impact. I know, you know, for myself, even though my mortgage payments will eventually go up 40%, I'm only going to feel 20% of that by the end of this, this year. And it's not going to be until 2024 when my four-year fix rolls off that I'm going to feel the rest of it. Um, so it does delay things, and it kind of gives you a bit of a gives you a little bit of insulation. But but the um, the pricing out there is it's an incredibly competitive market. We're seeing a lot of deals out there, and the banks are really um, working hard. And we've seen a lot of the issues that we saw over the last two years with processing times and turnaround times um, have largely you know disappeared. The banks are all fairly comparable now. Within I'd say kind of most of the the larger lenders are within three or four days of each other for turnaround times in the data that we track. Interesting. You know, after the um, the Royal Commission and the whole knock-on effect of that, uh, with the tightening of, um, you know, with responsible lending and the, and the, yeah. the, the flow-on tightening of um, credit, there were mortgage prisoners then too. Of course, yeah. interest rates weren't rising and they weren't necessarily um, as, you know, maybe feeling the pain quite so much, but they were trapped. And 
I've always thought that that's quite interesting because the whole responsible lending thing is meant to protect borrowers and that you've got a situation there where I've, it sounds like quite a lot of people potentially were impacted by that and actually trapped with one lender who's not going to give them a favourable deal. So that sort of makes a mockery of the whole responsible lending thing, doesn't it? Well, I think the problem here is that, um, you know, we had a buffer until October of 2.5%. We've now had 2.5% mm. of rate hikes in the space of, you know, about six months. And so that buffer is gone. If your income hasn't changed and you borrowed before October 2019, uh, sorry, October 2021, you effectively now to afford your loan, you're going to have to spend what you told the bank you spent. And in a lot of cases, it's not that people were lying about their expenses, but the way the banks phrase it is that, you know, what's a reasonable level of expenses across these categories? And so they're no longer going through your records with a fine tooth comb to say, hey, you bought a you went to baby bunting on the weekend. Are you expecting a child? They're not doing that, but they're asking you, okay, what's a reasonable level for you to spend on a on a monthly basis on food? Um, and you know, most of us, what we'll do is we'll kind of put the regular business as usual expenses. We'll leave out the date night where we take our take our partner out to you know a four or five hundred dollar meal. We'll we'll leave off the one offs. And so the challenge there is that um you know now that you've got that that buffer has been fully absorbed um for a lot of buyers they're going to be having to pull back on their spending mm. and that's that's where we expect to see a bit of a you know reduction discretionary mm. spending and then people you know pulling back on you know maybe i'll delay buying the new tv by a year run the car a bit longer you know maybe you know i want the new iphone but i'll give it i'll give it you know six months before i buy it that sort of stuff where people are just going to be having to delay some of those discretionary purchases because um they're you know the the cost of their mortgage has gone up by 40 percent in the space of um you know a bit over six months i think it's a really good point you said veronica around the uh there has been mortgage prisoners before we definitely saw it in 2014 to 2017 um the way the APRA tightened up around interest only loans um, there was that interest-only cliff conversation that was dominating headlines that everyone's, all the investors are going to come off and the market's going to crash. Um, but what's interesting, I think we're seeing banks realise if they don't look after their customers, they're going to leave. And I think that apathy that they were playing on, that banks, people would just say loyal, they're just not going to switch banks. They've, they're actually getting better at repricing um, and they get better looking at existing customers and saying, look, if we don't offer them better, they're going to leave. Even if they don't think that they could refinance, we are seeing... Uh, banks willing to come to the party to a certain extent. So even if you think you're a mortgage prisoner, you can potentially still get yourself a better deal by just asking for it. Um, and um, you can also get very lucky with valuations. We um, Some banks will do things called desktop valuations rather than actual valuations. And that could mean that if LVR is one of the reasons you can't refinance, as in your loan's over 80% of the value of the property, you could you know play around with desktop values. There's lots of things that... so. Just staying on the front foot um, and not just thinking you're a prisoner forever because it, it is something, you know, what is your largest expense um, every, you know, 50 basis points or, you know, even up to 1%. That 50 basis points, I reckon that's really conservative from, you know, what we can see for our existing customers if we, we look at what they're currently on versus, um, you know, new rates. Um, so I would suggest everyone sort of go there first. Um, now, Carlos, yeah. have you got a property Dumbo for us to finish it off today? Um, oh, there's, there's probably uh, a few uh, I've noticed around my neighbourhood recently, just with the, uh, not not, a spe not so much a specific, specific example, but I think the the theme of um, the very beat up old terraces, which need a lot of work that were bought at probably a bit too high a price um, last year. And there was one uh, around the corner from me here in Waterloo where um there was a, a terrace which sold in August of 2020 for about a million dollars. No work done on it. 
12 months later was sold for, for 1.45. Um, so a 44%, you know, return on that for the for the eventual um for the sellers. I think the reason they sold it is they realized the structural work and it was just too great. We inspected it and we thought it was it was a nightmare. It was the kind of one where you have to sign a disclaimer to go through the front door. And I suspect that the people who bought that are going to be facing a, you know, between construction costs going up 20% plus, uh, the challenge of finding a builder, borrowing capacity and interest rates going up, I think they're going to be finding a very challenging time. Um, I saw the DA go in for it. Um, now it's been, they bought it in June, July, and the DA only went in this um, this September. And the estimated construction cost was 300 grand for pretty much a full remodel of a, of a two, two-story two terrace, which I think is is optimistic. Um, yeah. And so I think that's <laughs> going to end up being quite a, quite a dumb up at the end of the day. They might get the work done, but I suspect um, between the purchase price, the construction costs, um, it's you know you're, you're probably looking at a two million dollar uh, kind of um, spend there, and I don't think it's uh, it's going to be a two million dollar house in Waterloo in this market. It's an interesting one actually because I know what happens often in a, a hot market is that the unrenovated properties they do sell for a premium because that is often perceived to be the only way somebody's going to get into a market. Yeah. And then of course any poor bugger that went and bought with that sort of belief system, and then copped it in terms of uh, materials uh, costs rising and also the labour costs rising in, in build, been a significant uh, increase in build, in the cost of building and also the delays that are associated with that, as you were saying. Uh, there, there'll be a lot of people caught out by that and then they'll get they'll be mortgage prisoners, all right, they'll be stuck in that property because they'll, they'll take, uh, you know, potentially a decade to, to recoup their money in some cases. So... Yeah, that's a very interesting scenario. I guess you watch this space in with some cases. Yeah. I mean, I think you're probably both seeing this at the moment where um, the feedback I'm hearing is, you know, those properties that are, are ready to live in that have recent renovations are yeah. selling really well because people don't want to do the work and it's too hard, whereas those properties that need some, some major work mm -hmm. done to them are really, really challenged because... Um, it's just hard. It's you know, it's expensive. People want to don't want to do it, and they and they want something that they can they can move into today. And the the allure of that beat up property that you can shine into you know your dream home is just not quite there when um when the build cost has gone up thirty percent. Yeah. Thank you so much for today, Carlos. I think it's a really interesting chat, especially around this global inflation story. I mean, it's how that plays out will determine interest rates, what happens to interest rates, going to determine property prices. You know, what happens with, I mean, you mentioned APRA maybe coming in next year. That's sort of your expectation. Um, maybe even potentially rate cuts next year. We're starting to see wage increases start to flow through. You know, um, people get poached, headhunted, you know, offered 50 grand more, et cetera. So I think all this stuff, you know, um, it's, it's a real moving target at the moment. So it'd be good to have you on sometime next year to, to talk it through again. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey. And most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.